This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Do we have the conceptual tools necessary for designing with next-generation technologies? Multi-touch services are going mainstream. New technologies for interacting with information are moving from the lab to our homes. Carl Fast, professor in the Information Architecture and Knowledge Management program at Kent State University, argues that our conceptual tools for interaction design are more limited and limiting than we currently believe. The concept of interaction as currently understood is based on a host of assumptions, many of which run so deep that we no longer see them as assumptions. Is interaction necessary? Of course it is. But for what? I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. So Kellogg's Corn Flakes were created <clears throat> to help people stop masturbating. <laughs> it's true. Uh, the idea was that the body is an engine. And this is 150 years ago, and of course it was a steam engine, and a steam engine can overheat if you give it the wrong type of fuel. And the sexual excesses, including masturbation, erotic dreams, all of these types of things, the solution to this problem, Dr. Kellogg believed, was to provide the body with a bland but nutritious fuel that would not overexcite the body, would not cause the body to overheat. Same thing is true of uh, Sylvester Graham, who created the Graham Cracker. Right? He actually wrote this, all kinds of stimulating and heating substances, etc., increase the um, concupiscent, uh, the lustful excitability and sensibility of the genital organs. Now, I mention this as an example because how we talk about the world matters. It matters a lot. The metaphors we use, the conceptual tools that we have shape almost everything. And some of these things become very deeply buried and take a long time for us to overcome them. They shape our thinking, our understanding, and in terms of our, what we do, our ideas for redesigning the world. Now, the body, of course, is no longer an engine. But the mind is a computer. That is what we have been told for many years. It's not a computer like your PC, but it does computation. And this has shaped a lot of thinking about things that you read. But you may not understand just how deep this goes, this thinking goes. The body doesn't count for very much here. Now, this is a model from the early or mid-'80s about how the mind works. And you will notice that this person does not have hands. They have manual motor processors. They don't have a mouth for talking. They have a vocal motor processor. They don't even have feet or hair or anything else. We are a machine of some sort in this idea. And this is out of a paper in human-computer interaction which underlies many of the ideas in interaction design, in information architecture, and all the other types of things that we have read and have based our practice on. So in a sense, we have moved a long ways. We have gone from this. We've gone from the difference engine, from the computer machine of, of Babbage, and we've gone into punch cards, and we've moved through mainframes, 
And we've moved now to this, but we still have concepts like direct, direct manipulation, which is pretty print, you know, central to the things that we do and we design. But direct manipulation is really quite indirect. I put my hand on a mouse, and that mouse controls a cursor which clicks on a scroll bar that moves a document up and down. And we call it direct manipulation. This is a big step forward in some respects. But it's not as far from the Unix command line as we might think. How do we interact with the world? How do we articulate our intentions to act upon the world? We only have three basic ways to do it. And they come from our physical body. One way is that we can use our hands to manipulate things. We can use our feet to navigate and walk around the world. And we can use our mouth to converse. Conversing is an interesting one because it's somewhat different than the other two. Instead of acting directly on things, what we do is we create symbols. We create language which express our intentions, and that gets interpreted by whatever we are acting towards. It's this intermediary. And what we were doing in the command line world was we were creating a language that we'd use to express our intentions to the machine. And when we go back to this and we have our pinch interface or our gestural interface, gestures are symbols. It's a language. One of the reasons that gestures are so easy to use right now is because there's a very small language there. You don't have many things to memorize. It's not like English or the Unix command line. There's not nearly as many words. Now, there is another thing, too. We are using our hands to communicate and create this language. And some of those gestures are very natural and intuitive and reflect the ways that we interact with the physical world around us, the ways that we have been doing for thousands of years. But this leap here is not as far as we think. So my question here is, when I think back and look at Kellogg's Corn Flakes, obviously there were some conceptual problems with uh, its origins. It hasn't prevented it from becoming successful. But I'm wondering if we have the conceptual tools to move on. And I want to give you four examples here today. I am much more in this talk going to try to raise questions and give you ideas than to give you answers. And I want to give you four big examples here that I think illustrate a wide range of problems that we are going to encounter. The first one is very simple. I've, imagine an experiment where I have you counting coins. I could take uh, a set of these coins, and they were on the table in front of you. And if I asked everyone here on the left, and I said, I would like you to count up the coins, and I was to observe this, I was to do a nice you know, observational study of your actual behaviors, you would do a variety of things. You would take them and you would say, I am going to look at all of the, uh, I'm going to go and count one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to take, these are the nickels, these are the pennies. I might group them. I might divide them up. I might sit there and go one, two, three. I might count them up one, two, uh, five, seven, et cetera. If I then took this group over here and I said, I want you to do exactly the same things, but I want you to take your hands and put them behind your back, you would do it much more slowly, and you would make many more errors. That's not very surprising, is it? And yet, nobody really bothered to point this out for a long time. Why do we use our hands? How do we use our hands to communicate, 
to articulate intentions. Is it just, I think, and then I act? Or maybe are our hands somewhat bound up in how we think? Is it maybe a bit more complicated than that? The key idea here is that even simple interaction with the world can dramatically improve our cognitive performance. Another example. There was a study done where they took a, a digital surface and they had a set of photographs. And so they had two groups of people come in. The one group of people were given a set of printed photographs and were asked to do a variety of rearranging tasks and sorting tasks and finding tasks with the physical photographs. The second group of people were asked to use, do the same, work with the same set of photographs, perform the same set of tasks, but they had a multi-touch, interactive, large surface to work with. They had the same amount of physical space, basically, to work with, the same images, the same tasks. Well, they noticed a number of things. There's two things in particular, two of their key observations that I would really like to point out here. The first is that when you gave the people the physical photographs, they immediately began using two hands. When you gave the people the digital surface, they used one finger. I can only use one finger and I can interact with one picture at one time in one place. But when, I gave them when they gave them physical objects, they could work with multiple photographs at the same time. They could group them together, hold some in one hand, hold some in the other. The second thing was that people picked them up, which seems pretty obvious, but it turns out that three-dimensional space is kind of important to us. We use that third dimension when we have it. And the touch surface did not replicate that, and this was a critical, critical interaction mechanism for them. It's sometimes been pointed out that the machine's mental model of us is pretty bad. Right? To the machine, this is what we look like. We have one finger, one big eye, a couple of ears, and no mouth. We don't have more than one. We don't have any thumbs. We don't have two hands. And we certainly don't have any feet. But I have all of those things, and all do, so do all of you. My third example, and I, I love this one, is about playing Tetris. How do we learn to play Tetris? So Tetris is quite simple, right? In a series of blocks, these blocks fall down and you need to move them around and rearrange them in a number of different ways. Slot them into this. All you can really do with them are four things. You can take the block and you can move it left, or you can move it right, or you can drop it into location, or you can rotate that piece. One of the things that we normally find here is um, people will over-rotate that piece. You'll rotate it once and say, oh, uh, and then you'll rotate it a little bit further. And then you'll say, oh, that's not quite right, and then you'll try to rotate it back into position before you move it down. Is that over-rotation a mistake? I mean, even the phrase over-rotation implies that you have made some sort of error. So in the study, they looked at how people learned to play Tetris. They took people who had never really played Tetris before at all, gave them the game, had them do this, and the prediction according to classical cognitive theory, classical information processing theory, 
is that there is an optimal path that you will find. And as one gains expertise in a particular skill, you will minimize these extraneous interactions and you will basically move from A to point B in a nice, neat, straight line. What they found was that as skill increases, over-rotations also increase. Not just as people had more experience, but as they became better players. The more skillful players deliberately over-rotated. Why? This goes completely counter to all their traditional theory. The explanation they argue, they, that they came up with um, was that not all action is the same. They distinguish between what they call pragmatic action and what they call epistemic action. In pragmatic action, you move towards a goal, and every step that you take in the world is supposed to move you closer to where you want to be. But the idea of epistemic action is quite different. You take steps in the world to understand more about the problem, to explore, you want to do things which will reduce the chance of error, to make mental computation simpler, or to make it faster. And when it comes to something like, say, finding lots of complicated information in Amazon or on Google, there are lots of different things that people do. You've done usability studies like this, right? You give someone a task, they have to do some searching, they click on a link, and then they're like, oh, that wasn't what I'm looking for, and then they go back a link. How do we interpret that? Well, that's an error, right? That's what we say. That's a mistake. They shouldn't really be doing that. Epistemic actions argues that that may not be true all the time. Many of the things that we classify as errors may actually be very beneficial from a cognitive perspective. Now, for us as designers, I think this has serious implications. But it also turns out to have serious implications for the theoreticians. Because it's forcing them to challenge a lot of long, long-standing ideas about this relationship between the mind and the body, between how we think and the world around us. Another example here is chess. Let me, uh, <clears throat> this epistemic action thing is, is quite important, so I want to take, give you another example of this. Um, when I was eight years old, I learned to play chess. Talked to my dad, and I said, can you teach me? And he said, no, no, I don't really have the time. Uh, but if you learn, I will play. So being the son of a librarian, I went down to the library, got a whole bunch of books about chess, came back to him a couple of days later and said, I'm ready to play chess. Let's play. And she just groaned and said, OK, I, I, I guess we'll play. So I said, great. And he whipped me. And then we played again. I said, oh, let's, let's do all this again. So we played a second time. And then finally, I realized he didn't really have the patience for chess. And so I never became a very good chess player. So I still do what a lot of people do which is you pick up a move, piece of a chess piece and you move it into a position and you put your finger on it to see if that's the right move, to see how it would look. And then you take that piece and you move it back. Right. What's interesting about this is you have made no net change in the world. Right? You change the state of the world you interacted with the world twice. You moved the piece and then you moved it back. And you just basically did nothing. There's no consequence here, right? You changed the world and then you reverse the action, like undo in Word. Epistemic action argues that just because you reverted to a previous state of the world doesn't mean that this was a useless move. This was valuable. And everyone who plays chess knows this. It's like we have these two ideas about how we move in the world. 
And for a long time, the theoretical idea has been that we always want to move towards A. A is the ideal, B is the error. But B is the reality, A is the unreal. So I want to give you this idea that when you look at people in usability studies and you see them floundering around and making these different types of mistakes, they may not be mistakes in the traditional sense. They may have what the academic would call epistemic value. And the idea here is that the way we interact with the world helps us understand the world. Let me give you a fourth example, and it's going to be a basic question. Why do we talk with our hands? I've been talking with my hands the whole time. You all talk with your hands. We all do it. Why? Well, the standard answer from sociology, the sociological answer to this question of why we talk with our hands is pretty straightforward. Ah, it's like inflection. I have some words, but inflection adds extra types of things. If I speak very softly, that conveys something in addition to the words. If I speak loudly or I'm yelling, that conveys something in addition to the words. Therefore, talking with the hands is just extra information. So why do you talk with your hands when you're on the phone? And nobody can see your hands. If you think about that for a little bit, you might come up with the answer that, oh, all right, no problem. I've got the answer. It's a habit. Right? I've just learned to do this since I mostly talk with other people. Although with the prevalence of cell phones these days, I wonder about that. So then why do children who are blind from birth talk with their hands? Because they've never seen a hand. But they do. And it gets more interesting than that. There have been some studies about children who have been blind from birth and about how they talk and how they use gestures to communicate. They did a study where they took two groups of kids who were about, uh, I believe, between 12 and 18 years old. The one group was sighted, and the other group was blind from birth. They gave, them visual, they gave them some reasoning tasks. So they had to work through a particular problem, and then they had to explain this to someone else. <clears throat> when they did this explanation, not only did both groups use their hands, but both the sighted and the blind children use more or less the same gestures. They use the same physical movements to describe physical phenomena, whether they'd seen it or not. The implication here is that there is some very, very deep connection between the mind and the body and how we express ourselves. So here's my little summary, right? We have four examples. Counting coins. The idea here, cognition is not just in the head. And even simple interactions can improve performance. The example of arranging photographs, the two things I want you to remember here is that we think about digital artifacts differently than the physical ones, even when they're very, very similar. And the world is 3D, not 2D, and we take advantage of that. When it comes to Tetris, remember here, interaction can have epistemic benefits. Errors are not always errors. And what the epistemic action paper really did was did something analogous to what Einstein did. Einstein unified space and time and said these are not separate concepts, these are the same concept, and they're related in a very deep way. What epistemic actions argues is that there is a physical space and an information space, and we really should be thinking about a physical information space. They're unified in some deep and important way, and what groups these two together, what brings this space and unifies all this together, is interaction with the world. It's the things that we do. The last example here is this bit about talking with our hands. 
Now, the theory behind this goes by a whole bunch of different names. Some of this you may have heard of, some of it you may not. Distributed cognition, embodied cognition, situated action, activity theory, ecological psychology, and probably a few others that, I haven't, that I've forgotten here. But they all believe the same basic thing. The body matters, and it matters a lot. Cognition is embodied, which what we mean by this is this idea that we could simply somehow take your head, carve it open, scoop out your brain, put it in some special vat, and you would still have a reasoning, thinking, cognitive being, seems rather ludicrous. We evolved body and mind together. That's the idea. And the third point here is that interaction is critical for making sense of the world, not just for doing things, but for how we understand things. In short, Descartes was wrong. <laughs> he was right about many things, but he was probably deeply wrong about a number of very, very important things. And this is an idea which has been getting a lot of traction in academic circles. It's also something that is going to, I believe, have long-term consequences for us over the next coming decades. Because our conceptual tools don't account for this. Because mind-body dualism runs very deep. You find it all over the place. Cognitive science, artificial intelligence, logical positivism, information science, HCI. A lot of these things have informed our practice. It's been argued that HCI has, is entirely based on a pre-1930s philosophy of the world, which is logical positivism, rationalism, things like Martin Heidegger and being in time doesn't account for anything in HCI. Because HCI comes out of cognitive science and artificial intelligence and computer science, and all of those are based on these very, very old ideas. Now, these things are changing. So when you see a cool demo at TED, you should know that if it's an academic presenting that material, it's not just about the technology. They're presenting to you and giving you the technology, but behind that technology, what shaped their thinking were these ideas that are changing these fields. Those are ideas coming out of things like distributed cognition, activity theory, and so on. And when we take a look back at something like this, we can really see the influence. Design of everyday things is something that everyone here has either read or feels terribly guilty about not having read. <laughs> and one of the core ideas in the book, of course, is this, the seven-stage decision-action cycle. Right? We have goals. We have an intention to act, we have a sequence of actions, we execute that action sequence. Basically, we do something to the world, the world then changes, and then we perceive in a series of steps the state of the world, and then we have this stuff here at the top which says goals, but it should really say cognition. Now, there is some work which argues that, okay, this is a useful uh, premise, and Norman himself recognized the limits of it, that it was a model, and it was a simple model, but hopefully a useful one. This is um, from a paper by David Kirsch, who's a cognitive scientist at uh, California, San Diego, I believe. And he said, yes, this is a very useful thing, but we should complexify this a lot. There's a whole bunch of things it doesn't account for. I would argue that we're probably better served at this stage by simplifying it. Because this is really all that he's talking about in that picture. Now, there's a couple things I want to point out about the way I've drawn this. First, I have, in this diagram here, what I'm so showing is that the way we think about things is that the cognition is very big and complicated, and the world is very big and complicated. So people in cognitive science 
Totally, the mind, absolutely. Artificial intelligence, cognition, the mind, very complicated. For us, we're very interested in the world, right? We're very interested in the information in the world and how we structure that and the kinds of things that we do and the artifacts and systems and devices that we create. But when it comes to perception and action, we have generally felt that they are relatively small, much smaller and much simpler in many cases, not as complicated, and also that they are discrete, that they're kind of separate. We have one, then the other. Now this, of course, is a simplified model, but I would argue that many of us have roughly this kind of model in terms of our thinking, and that the reality is much, much more like this. And this is what the theory is telling us. Action and perception are much larger and much more important, and there's a lot more overlap. This is far too simple. This is, of course, much harder to design around, but we all know that in some sense that this is very much reality. So I asked at this talk, the title was called Interaction, is, is it interaction necessary? Well, of course it is, right? But for what? What is interaction necessary for? There's a logic to the systems that we build when it comes to information. We want to understand information. But if you want to understand information, you first need to use it. And that's kind of what I'm arguing here. But in order for you to use it, it has to exist. Actually, I've got that backwards. You have to be able to find it, and then, you have to, and then it has to exist. Right? So first, you have the existence problem. You can't understand what you can't use. You can't use what you can't find. And you can't find what doesn't exist. So first, we have to solve the existence problem. Then we have to find, solve the finding problem. And I think we're very obsessed with those first two problems, and I don't know that we have the tools to really deal with the use problem and the understanding problem. And those problems are very different than many of the problems that we've been dealing with so far. Checking out a book at your library or buying a book on Amazon are fairly simple because you've got a nice known endpoint. I am at A, and I want to go to B. But what if you don't know what B is? What if there are an infinite number of Bs, like when you were an undergraduate and you had to write that philosophy paper? There are a lot of different possible Bs, and that's a very different problem, and we don't have interaction design capabilities really around this, I don't think. I mean, how far can the mouse, how far can this take us? And everything that is buried in this idea of the mouse. Even this, right? This is a paper that appeared in Interactions last, couple, uh, last year, I believe talking about the phones, and they did a survey of all the different types of phones that you could find, and um, revealed that you know, they all use a variety of different interactions to make a phone call. I don't really care about making a phone call, I care about hard, complex problems. I've got lots of information. I need to make sense of that, I need to understand that. I need to deal with like mountains and mountains of web analytics data. How do I make sense of that? That is far more complicated than going with a phone. Now, I think we should be worried a little bit here if we can't quite solve the phone problem. I don't have a cell phone myself, and I often wind up borrowing a phone from people, and every time they give me a phone, they say, oh, well, just give me the number, and I'll dial it for you, because it's a little complicated. So I think there is a valid point here, but we have bigger fish to fry long term. Here's an example of something called DSpace, and I want to give you this because it's a nice diagram. It reflects a lot of this. It's a similar type of thing to a lot of the stuff we deal with in information architecture. Big, complicated information spaces. And if you look at this diagram, you will notice 
that, wow, my goodness me, the work of the digital librarian, the curator, the information architect, isn't that difficult. We've got to deal with all of these different problems. Preservation and management, creating structure. What the user does is just merely retrieve them. This small little piece. We have this conceptual mindset that the interaction that we do is very much complicated. You ever look at a um, content management system? Look at all the powerful things that you can do in a content management system. I mean, many of them are weak, but you can do many more ways of interacting with the information and manipulating that information than the person on the other end, than the user. And it's the same with digital library tools. Digital libraries are all about knowledge, all about learning, but the reality is they're all about information and finding. And the tools that the digital librarians have to create the space are far more powerful than the tools that the person who comes to the digital library can work with. All you get is a database with a search box and a browse interface, and that we call the digital library. I don't care about finding stuff. I mean, that's easy. We're all finding bazillions of things. So to interaction, is interaction necessary? Well, of course it is. But for what? Well, for these things. For understanding, for thinking, for solving, for analyzing, for reasoning, for deciding, for problem solving, for knowing. And we're beginning to see some of the limits. We see limits here in terms of what these tools are like. But there are assumptions buried in those tools. Those assumptions are buried in things like this. And those assumptions gave us stuff like this. And they're lurking inside the iPhone too. They're there. We don't really see them all yet. Think about something like web search. There are 30 or 40 years of hard, hard work going into information retrieval before we got Google. And in all that time, not a single person ever suggested that the people who create metadata to describe documents would have a vested interest in lying about those documents. And yet it turns out that lying about metadata in any form, whether it's keywords, whether it's the actual metadata at the top, whether it's link spam, all of that was never thought of because it was just assumed. And I keep wondering, what assumptions do we have buried in something like this that we don't really see? So I'm not sure we're ready for something like the Microsoft Surface or Siftables, if you've seen the demo from Ted, which has been making the rounds and has got lots of people excited, or this other demo from Ted this year about the, uh, the sixth sense and projecting information into the world. And it was pretty cool, but I'm wondering if we're ready for it as designers, as practitioners. Do we have the tools that we have? Do we have the things that we need? Now, to give you another analogy here about the importance of the conceptual tools. My wife and I had a son about, uh, about a month ago. He was born six weeks early. I'm a Canadian, which means that my experience of the American healthcare system is either confusion or outrage. It falls into one of those two categories. And I have come to realize that the problem, in my view anyway, is how people talk about healthcare down here. People put healthcare into the language, into, they use it, uh, they use the same language that they use to talk about toothpaste or breakfast cereal, right? Your cornflakes. They talk about it as consumers. Healthcare is a consumer issue down here. Oh, 
consumers, health consumers, need choice. They need freedom to choose their own health care, et cetera. Um, where I'm from, in Canada and in Sweden and France and all these other places with socialized medicine, that demon word, or universal medicine or whatever, we put it in a different category. We don't talk about it in terms of uh, consumers. We talk about it in terms of citizenship. We put it in the category with civil rights, with the right to free speech. And when you take something like healthcare and you convert your fundamental language which you use to talk about it, you recategorize it, your conceptual framework completely changes. And you wonder why the hell you ever talked about it the same way you talked about buying toothpaste. So our conceptual tools shape our designs and I want to know how far this can take us and I don't know that it can take us much farther. I don't think the tools we have for designing dialog boxes are going to help us that much further, or the standard GUI desktop, or Firefox, or Google. I think we're going to hit limits. I've been trying to give you a whole set of questions, and I don't have a lot of answers for you at this stage, although I, I do have some. I don't have enough time to go through with them. But I want to suggest that you begin reading some of the hard stuff. There's a great book called Where the Action Is by Paul Durish. He's at um, the University of Sandy, um, UC Irvine, I believe. The book's from about seven or eight years ago. It's called uh, The Foundations of Embodied Interaction. He talks a lot in that book about tangible computing and social computing. He argues that they are fundamentally related to each other. Those are two major research tracks that have been connected over the last number of years. I don't know if you really want to read the cognitive integration book. That one's uh, pretty serious, and it's not really going to tell you much about designing, but it is a good synthesis of a lot of the issues, philosophical issues in cognitive science around like what is really happening in terms of this mind-body connection. You'll read a whole lot about the, uh, the Tetris paper in there and a number of other things. And there's lots of good research papers. The Intelligent Use of Space by David Kirsch is a classic that I think everyone should read. It's as important in my book as the design of everyday things. It's way up there, right? Here's a more recent paper, Reality-Based Interaction, a Framework for Post-WIMP Interfaces. People are writing about this. This is the paper on interactive touch surfaces and the photographs. There are big ideas out there. They are in the academic literature. They require a bit of work to get at them. But I don't think that we can move forward beyond where we are now unless we start grappling with them at this level. Thank you. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.